As you may know, this summer we are in a series where we're talking about our God-given gifts of creativity, curiosity, and play. August is our month for play, and we begin exploring this gift and what scripture has to teach us about it with a reading from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 and 12b through 19. Hear God's word to you. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went in front of the ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And with those, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When was the last time you did something you would describe as play? The last time you turned off your brain and just had fun? It could have been taking a walk, going for a swim, reading a book, watching a movie, engaging in activity with your children or grandchildren, making music, listening to music, dancing, to music, anything that took you just for a period of time out of the thinking and worrying and task-oriented frame of mind from which we so often live. Last summer, I participated in an online cohort of pastors that met weekly for six weeks to process the challenges of leading a church during a global pandemic. 
One day, our facilitator asked us to draw a picture of ourselves as children engaging in a favorite childhood activity, one of those activities we would get so immersed in we would lose all track of time. After we drew our pictures and shared them with the group, we were invited to consider how those activities now figure into our adult lives. In almost every case, the members of the cohort shared that these activities that brought such joy in childhood were activities we were still drawn to as adults, but which we rarely made time for. Apparently, we had all absorbed the message that play is for children. In today's scripture lesson, King David tackles a serious task, moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. David has not only finally become Israel's king after many years of waiting, he's also conquered Jerusalem and established this city as the capital, the so-called city of David. He's built himself a palace, started a family, and conquered Israel's worst enemy, the Philistines. The only thing left is to transport the ark to Jerusalem so that the city may be not just the political capital, but the religious capital as well. So what exactly was the Ark of the Covenant, and why did it need to be in Jerusalem? Well, the Ark was simply a wooden box designed to very precise specifications to store the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments Moses had received from the Lord on Mount Sinai. But it was more than that. For the people, the ark is a tangible symbol of God's self-revelation to Moses. It's part of the narrative of the Exodus when God rescued God's people from slavery and led them through the wilderness to the promised land. The ark reminds the people of God's saving actions and steadfast presence. David knows that for Jerusalem to truly be the capital city of Israel— The Ark of the Covenant needs to be in its midst. We learn how serious the task of moving the Ark is from an episode that was left out of today's scripture reading when Uzzah, one of the men helping to move the Ark, reaches out to steady it and dies as soon as he touches it. Of course, all of us of a certain age remember what happened in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark when the Ark falls into the wrong hands. The Ark is no plaything. Moving it from one location to another is serious business. But when David and the tens of thousands of his people retrieve the Ark from where it's been stored to keep it safe, this serious task of transporting the very presence of God to the newly established capital, becomes an ecstatic experience of full-blown play. David and the people are described leading the procession with the ark, making music and dancing with all their might. Dancing like no one was watching. Dancing like their lives depend on it. After decades as a self-described workaholic, Dr. Stuart Brown founded the National Institute for Play, an organization that seeks to unlock the human potential for play 
at all stages of life. When asked to define play, Brown says it's anything spontaneously done for its own sake, that appears purposeless, that produces pleasure and joy, and that can lead one to the next stage of mastery. Biologically, Brown says, play appears to be the product of divinely superfluous neurons. I'll say that again. From a scientific perspective, the human desire and need to play comes from divinely superfluous neurons, parts of our brain that appear otherwise unnecessary, but which ultimately change our lives through play. Brown warns us against the typical adult view of play as something only children do, play as trivial, play as something to engage in only after the work is done. This is a false conception, he says. Biologically speaking, the human being needs to engage in play throughout life, not just in childhood. And when we don't play, there are consequences including, says Brown, rigidity, depression, lack of adaptability, failure to appreciate irony, all things that can help us cope with the challenges and demands of daily life. Brown discovered the serious consequences of a lack of play early in his career. He was months into his first job at the University of Texas at Austin in the summer of 1966, when a young man named Charles Whitman perpetrated what was at the time the largest mass shooting in our country. Because the crime took place in Austin and because Brown had researched violence in graduate school, he was asked to lead a behavioral study of Whitman. One of the surprising findings was that because of his overbearing and abusive father, Charles Whitman had been systematically prevented from engaging in play throughout his life, including in early childhood. This led Brown and his team to look at other murderers whose crime wasn't part of an established pattern of behavior, and they found that 90% of them had deficient and abnormal histories of play. Today's scripture underscores what scientists have determined through neurological, psychological, and even theological explorations of play. A true experience of play. When we get into the state sometimes referred to as flow, is not only good for our minds and our bodies, it is good for our souls. After decades of study, Brown believes play is one of the most significant ways we encounter the divine. We know this from opportunities we have, including this week with the Olympic Games, to watch athletes or musicians or anyone at the top of their game. They enter a state of mind and body that is out of this world, that connects them with something outside themselves. Play also connects us to others who can understand and appreciate and share that experience, whether it's teammates or competitors or friends. This is the dynamic we witness in children who become immersed in play. 
And it shows us that true play is indeed a spiritual experience. As he led the ark into Jerusalem with his entire nation watching, David could have done anything. He could have read from the scriptures, reciting to people the commandments of God, teaching them the importance of the law. He could have led them in a solemn procession, wearing sackcloth and ashes, highlighting the seriousness of their faith. He could have ridden before the ark in a chariot, wearing his armor and brandishing his sword, showing the people the power that comes from the living God. Instead, as the people moved the ark, their holiest relic, the very presence of God, David and his people made music and danced with all their might. Theologian and sports enthusiast Joe Price says, it's possible to take play seriously. And it's possible for faith to be an act of play. Play, he says, is an exercise of the spirit. Watch children in a playground at a park. Their spirits soar. And isn't that what we aspire to cultivate in faith communities? To have the adults' spirits soar? If Price is correct and David's journey with the ark suggests he is, then play is as significant a part of our lives of faith as worship and study and prayer. From time to time, we all need to lose ourselves in ecstatic, embodied experiences of play, not just for the pleasure it brings us, but as a way to commune with God and with one another. A true communal experience of play, like the one David and his people had, is a collective experience of wonder, joy, and vulnerability that can bind a community together in a way nothing else can. For David, inviting and engaging his people in this act of holy play is as important as what he does at the end of our reading when he performs ritual offerings, blesses the people, and distributes food to them. Now I have to admit, it isn't easy for me to stand here and tell you that play the true embodied ecstatic play when it engages us with God and with each other is a crucial part of our faith. I too am a product of our culture that wants us to prove our worth by trying harder and achieving measurable standards of success. As a church, I want our faith to be revealed by the ways that we show compassion to our neighbors do justice in our community, and build a world Jesus showed us was possible, where all people know their God-given dignity and worth. There are deadly serious problems in our world right now, and it will take serious people of faith to solve them. Political polarization, the global pandemic, climate change, gun violence, entrenched inequities, the list goes on. As I wrote this sermon, a voice in my head kept saying, these are the things we need to be talking about, not play. How is play going to solve anything? Truth be told, I identify more in this text with Michael 
than with David. Michael, Saul's daughter, David's wife, who saw David dancing and despised him for his unselfconscious display of jubilation. That wasn't behavior fit for a king. But this story reminds us of an important lesson. It is possible to take ourselves too seriously. God has given us the gift of play to release us from that burden. And when we allow ourselves to participate in that gift, we might just find ourselves better equipped for the challenging tasks at hand. In 1986, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev met in Iceland to discuss nuclear arms control in hopes of finally ending the Cold War their countries had been mired in for decades. Over the course of two days, the talks went from bad to worse as the leaders and their negotiators failed to find points of agreement. Then, on the morning they were scheduled to leave, Reagan suggested the two leaders have breakfast together. As they ate, he began telling jokes. Gorbachev shared some jokes of his own, and the tension between the two men began to dissolve as they laughed and ate together. They eventually returned their discussion to the matters at hand and found some points of compromise. Although an official agreement wasn't reached during the summit, historians now consider it a turning point in ending the Cold War. Play matters. It matters for our relationship with God and with each other. It feeds our souls, and it equips us to respond with joy to our calling. So let's give ourselves permission to play so that together we might engage with God in the holy and joyful and playful work of bringing God's beloved community into being. Amen.